Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around Black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is Black culture and the Black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact Black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. Our June episode highlights voices who are active in the fight for freedom, justice, and equality for all regardless of race, gender, or sexual orientation. June is widely celebrated as Pride Month, yet we can explore the intersectionality of being Black in the community celebration. Additionally, we'll highlight the importance of Juneteenth and its impact in the Bay Area. Today, we'll kick things off with Juan Toscano-Anderson the Warriors guard who is a self-described Blackskin and a hometown hero of Oakland, California, on his journey to the NBA and to his own self-awareness. Next, we'll catch up with brothers Jason and Jaron Collins about their time in NBA. Jason talks about being one of the first fully out gay basketball players in the league, and Jaron discusses his impact on the sport and the wider culture. And finally, in a rewind spot, you'll meet the late Rachel Townsend, whose work as much as anyone guaranteed that Juneteenth has a place in the Bay Area cultural fabric. Man, when I think about Juneteenth, I go back to the Santa Clara County Fairgrounds in San Jose, where we always went to a Juneteenth festival in my youth. It was a time for generations of family to come together and celebrate. Well, celebrate being Black. It's our 4th of July, separate from Independence Day, because that day did not deliver us from subjugation. No, but took another 90 or so years for America to finally cast out its original sin and declare all African Americans to be emancipated. The bill that would allow Juneteenth to become a federal holiday is heading to President Biden's desk. So Juneteenth is our day, but for most of its history, it has existed in the margins as something niche to be celebrated within the black community. It is a dream deferred that is now realized. They thrived with parades, church gatherings. Today is our liberation day and we will not be silent. Yes, I'll say it again, festivals and also cookouts. A mixture of June and 19th. Juneteenth marks the day in 1865 when a group of enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally learned that they were free from the institution of slavery. 1865, the last group of enslaved people in America were freed. But woefully, this was almost two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. The Civil War was still going on, and when it ended, Union Major General Gordon Granger traveled to Texas and issued an order stating that all enslaved people were free, establishing a new relationship between former masters and slaves as employer and hired labor. As much as Juneteenth represents freedom, 
It also represents how emancipation was tragically delayed for enslaved people in the deepest reaches of the Confederacy. Newly freed black people celebrated the first Juneteenth in 1866 to commemorate liberation with food, singing, and reading at spirituals, and take pride in their progress. Americans will get to celebrate a brand new federal holiday, Juneteenth, which commemorates the end of slavery. With the stroke of a pen today, Juneteenth became the first new federal holiday since Martin Luther King Day in 1983. This day doesn't just celebrate the past. It calls for action today. Juneteenth in 2021 comes amid national protests over police killings of people of color and rage over institutionalized racism at large corporations, in pop culture, in the government, in every facet of life. It also comes in the thick of a pandemic that has preyed upon people of color at a disproportionate rate reflecting and retrenching structural inequality in a society that has often been far from willing to confront its ugliest prejudices toward black people. These issues have also thrust what were once cloistered black spaces into newfound prominence with major American corporations, especially in the tech space and media companies and financial institutions, all recognizing the day and its importance. At its heart, though, the day is a celebration of enduring spirit, and the will of black Americans everywhere. Let's face it, if we're going to try to bottle up black joy, Juneteenth is where you'd get most of the takers. Fireworks were set off right in the middle of the street on Grand Avenue tonight. But Juneteenth is also a symbol of emancipation and freedom, especially in the Bay Area, where a diverse cultural gumbo has bubbled for decades, especially with the LGBTQ plus community, whose own struggle has been well documented. Today, though, Pride Month, like Juneteenth, is not at the corners or in the shadows, but a fully ingrained part of the Bay Area cultural tapestry and one of the city's largest events. A colorful celebration rolled through the streets of downtown Oakland today as the city put on its annual Pride Parade. It's in this affirmation of spirit that we dedicate our June episode. Juan Toscano Anderson is certainly one of the more interesting players I've ever met in all my years covering the NBA. The man is a revelation, and his story should be the stuff of movies. Pure inspiration, man. Toscano Anderson was introduced to basketball in the third grade at Oakland Stonehurst Elementary School by his then-teacher, Wilhelmina Adels, who was a former Uppsala College basketball star and the wife of Warriors legend and Hall of Famer, my guy, Al Adels. After seeing Toscano Anderson fall in love with the game, she was able to get him into the Warriors youth basketball camp during his youth. Next up for Juan was AAU basketball, then starring at Castro Valley High, and receiving a full basketball scholarship to Marquette University in Milwaukee, where he earned a degree in criminal justice. But after that, Juan's basketball career was expected to end, as he didn't even put his name in the NBA draft, and no teams were interested. Instead of packing it in, he went to play professionally in Mexico, joined the national team, and became a Latin American hoops legend. With the odds highly against him, Toscano Anderson became one of 30 players who was offered a tryout for the Warriors G League Santa Cruz team and was determined to be noticed. Let's just say things all worked out. He made the Warriors, and now he's an integral part of the team a fan favorite, and most importantly, a vocal proponent for social justice in his East Oakland community. He joins us today on Beyond 28.
I sincerely say this, that we're about to hear from one of my favorite people in the NBA. And, and I'm, I'm excited to always mention that this, this, this brother from Oakland is in the NBA. He is in my 22 years of covering the NBA. His road to the NBA to me is the most remarkable. If you believe you can achieve, I guess you could say, right. Welcome in um, Juan Toscano Anderson, second year. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure. And I appreciate those words as well. And I, and I'll let you elaborate and and your, your story. I don't know how you make it a cliff notes version of it, but, I was like, he didn't put his name in the draft. Like, <laughs> so for people that don't know, you know, Juan played at Marquette and did not enter the draft, mm-hmm. what, in 2015? Yep. Tell the story of how you went from not putting your name in the NBA draft to being a second-year Warriors uh, guard. just found a different route. After college, like, I just didn't have the confidence or the love for the game to even pursue playing, you know, after that. So I went overseas played in Mexico, accomplished everything in Mexico. So I just wanted to find a bigger pond to go play in. So that's what made me go to the G League and then hard work, man, belief. And I ended up getting invited to Summer League and now I'm here in the league. You're humbly telling this story, but Juan played in Mexico for two years and went to the Oracle for a G League tryout. Nobody knew who the hell he was. And his energy, his, his vocal nature, his leadership – caught the attention of the coaches. He caught their eye, brought him to Santa Cruz. He makes the team, playing in Santa Cruz. He bet on himself because he had an yes, offer back in Mexico. ACB year. And, and his girlfriend basically like, nah, don't take the money that you've been offered. Bet on yourself. Even though the G League Man, pays less than right. the McDonald's, right? So he makes the G League team, and then months later, the Warriors call him up for a 10-day. So I guess now I ask you again, man, it's, when you think about your story, do you still pinch yourself that you were able to like accomplish something that I I think is a story of of movies, a story that sometimes I know people around me get tired of me being so excited about you know my position in life and my opportunity, but the fact of the matter is this isn't regular. Everybody doesn't get to play in the NBA or isn't able to you know have the position I have being the only Mexican in the NBA or. Like, I've been the guy where nobody knows. I've been in a gym where nobody's, no coaches are calling. I'm so excited, man. I, I created a name for myself this year in the league. I, I, I want to take you back to your early days, man. There, there's a woman whose family is special to the Warriors organization that introduced you or, or helped you fall in love with the game of basketball. Yeah, so I, 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 went to, I transferred to Montclair Elementary in third grade. And the reason for my transfer was I was at Stonehurst Elementary in East Oakland. In second grade, there was a kid. His name was Jabari. And he pulled a, a little, like, a knife out on me. And we're in second grade, man. Like, imagine that. Second graders pulling out knives on kids. And after that, my mom was just like, like, you got to go. So uh, we ended up transferring the following year. And I met Miss Addles. I was going through a lot of stuff in my life at the time. And she could tell. I'm going to stop you right there. So for people that don't know, Mrs. Addles is the wife of Al Adels, the patriarch of the Warriors, the legendary player, coach. He's been with the franchise over 70 years. He's in the Hall of Fame. This is his wife. My third grade teacher. teacher. And she was just very much emotionally available to me. She understood me and she just saw me out on the playground every day. Like I'm a competitor. I'm a born competitor. I've always been that way. I love the game. She saw something in me and she put me in Warriors camp. And from there on, the rest was history. Yeah, man, that was just when my life changed because of her. 
anytime I'm in East Oakland, man, you see two things, the black community and the Hispanic community, the Mexican community. You, you are, have a piece of you in both. Let's talk about your, your, your racial background and kind of the, the challenges you had growing up, but also the, the, the beauty. You know, within the black community, there is colorism. You know, I dealt with that. I w- I'm not full Mexican, so I dealt with, you know, being called certain names or I don't want to use the word shunned, but kind of like being shied upon because I have black. And so I've experienced, I guess, discrimination from both sides. I could go, I can be in black communities. I can be in a room full of black people and be just comfortably fine. There was good and there was bad. So there was discrimination from black people and Mexican people. But also, like I said, I can go congregate amongst black people and be comfortable. I can congregate amongst Mexican people and speak Spanish and be comfortable and understand what's going on. People always ask me, you know, what do you identify with more? And that's a super tough question for me because my whole family is Mexican. So I grew up on Mexican traditions, Mexican culture, all that stuff. But when I went outside, like I was a black kid, like I look black to white America. If I walk out in white America, they're not going to be like, oh, that's a mixed kid. They're going to be like, that's a black male. Also, all my friends were black. Uh, I identified like from a social aspect, I identify with black culture. Black skin was a thing. Then I would just say, hey, I'm black skin, you know, because I feel like I equally identify. (laughs) (laughs) Make it a thing. Make it a thing. Juan, I'll tell you this. I grew up in uh, East Side San Jose. I'm black, but because I grew up around so many Mexicans, <laughs> I got like a pass to go to like quinceañeras and like different like birthday parties. And like, so I love Tejano music. Like I love listening okay. to ma- mariachi bands and you probably have a lot of fun, man, being able to be in both cultures as well. I could have tacos one night and then I could have fried chicken, greens and mac and cheese the next night. And that's in my house. I can cook all that in my house. <laughs> You know, we celebrate in Dia de los Muertos, but I'm also going to celebrate Juneteenth also. You know what I'm saying? Hey, man, you got to invite me over one of these I days, will, man. man for some tacos, man. Shoot, you could do Taco Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. I don't care what day. You let me know. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Juneteenth. Was Juneteenth something that you, you celebrated? This past year was like my third time, I think. My mom used to take us to a lot of festivals when we were kids. Art and festival, soul festival, all that stuff in Oakland, Juneteenth stuff. But this past year in 2020 was the first time. So I have a friend who's a DJ and, you know, he set up at Lake Merritt and we kind of just put it out to our friends that, you know, we're going to do something. We didn't expect for it to be as big as it was. But I guess we should have expected that seeing how the protest turned out two weeks prior to Juneteenth. And so we just had a big celebration at the lake. It was all good vibes. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, man. And so that was the first time like, I got actually like really participated, put something yeah. together, invited people out. like. Uh, sometimes I'm ashamed to say it, but like my father wasn't in my life and that's, you know, my black side of the family. So when it comes to like my black history and, you know, black culture, like I, I don't I don't know much. But, you know, as I become more in tune, I am teaching myself. Do you think it's important for the NBA and the Warriors to recognize this holiday? Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't it be? The, the NBA is dominated by black men. The NBA is there's no NBA without black men. You know, there's no other LeBron James out there. There's no other Steph Curry. There's no other James Harden out there. Like, I think it would be really good. I think it would be really progressive. 
And I think they, they would be leading by example if they, you know, went on to celebrate Juneteenth and, and, and make it a thing. Yeah. I think we deserve more. I mean, we got Fourth of July. We got Columbus Day. We got. But you get the point that I'm trying to make. You know, what's wrong with, with honoring black people, African-American people? And I think that that would be really great. I think it would be good for the NBA, but it would also be very uplifting for the black community also. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned um, before Juneteenth last year, you, you had your, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, you, you had a peaceful uh, march in Oakland around Lake Merritt. Clay showed up, Steph showed up. What what are your biggest memories of that march? Uh, my biggest memory is just like all of it, a com- compilation of all of it, like Steph coming out, Clay, Loon, D. Lee, and then all the people that came out. Like I never expected that many people to come out. So that was really cool. But, you know, there was so much going on in downtown Oakland at that time. There was a misconception of, you know, whether it was peaceful protesting, whether people were looting. And we just wanted to create a space for people to come out and express themselves. Like, you know, I cried when George Floyd died. That could have easily been me. You know, that man screaming for his mama. People feel a little more comfortable around me because I'm lighter than some of my friends. And that's I mean, that's messed up. And I'm I'm conscious of that. So, you know, we just wanted to create a space for people to come out, create something positive for Oakland, because Oakland was getting a lot of like, oh, you know, it's violent protesting, looting, this, that and the third. And so if we can come together and, you know, create ideas and support one another and be a community. Strength in numbers, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> but what, what would you say to, um, I think America, whether it's the Tulsa Race Massacre or, or Juneteenth, whether they want to or not, they're, they're learning a lot about black history and other cultures mm-hmm. that they probably didn't know. Why, why is that important to learn about other cultures? What, what do you think about the state of things today and I think America's being forced to learn about everybody yeah. else. I think it's really important. I think like my whole motto in life is just for allow people to be happy and do what they want. You know, as long as they're not doing anything detrimental to their own health or anybody else's well-being. Like if black people want to party and celebrate and, you know, promote their history and all that stuff, by all means, allow them to do that. We don't sit here and be like, oh, damn, Mexicans get Cinco de Mayo and Dia de los Muertos and damn, white people get July 4th and this, that. Like, we're not out saying people not to celebrate their history. So, <laughs> And so allow people to be free, man. Allow people to be happy. Allow people to be proud of who they are in their history. And so, you know, there's a lot that I learned in high school and middle school about history. And it ain't nothing in there about, you know, black culture at all. Because to know yourself, you have to know your history. This is my last one. What advice would you give somebody who is a long slot like you were. Be yourself. That's who you were born to be. That's what God made you. You're you're unique in your own way. Be yourself always at all times. That's the first and most important thing I would tell people. Juan Toscano Anderson. I appreciate you, Mark. Thank Thank you for having me, my man. Next on Beyond 28, we'll speak with Jaron and Jason Collins the twin brothers who have dedicated their lives to the game of basketball's players, coaches, and activists. Jaron, until recently, was a longtime Warriors assistant coach who has begun his journey for a head coaching position. His impact on the Warriors as a former player and defensive coach during his three titles will always be respected. His brother Jason became the second openly gay player in the NBA in 2013 when he announced his sexuality to his then teammates 
at the Boston Celtics. All told, Jason logged 13 seasons in the NBA for six different teams before retiring with the Brooklyn Nets in 2014. We discussed with Jaron and Jason the intersectionality of being out in the black community and the NBA community, plus the enduring bond of brotherhood. I have the pleasure of talking to two um, California Bay Area basketball legends, man. Two brothers that I got to be familiar with, the Collins twins, Jason and Jaron Collins, who both had uh, exceptional lengthy basketball careers. I always call NBA careers significant when you get to 10 years, right? You guys both got 10? Yes. Yes. They got got the good pension. (laughs) (laughs) Jason and Jaron Collins, welcome to Beyond 28. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, but but I always wonder, who's older? I am Jason. Uh, I am eight minutes older, and our parents were only expecting one child. So I came out first, and then eight minutes later, the nurse says to the doctor, there's one more in there. <laughs> how, how would you say um, love, brotherhood is, especially the bond that you have from being twins? I think it's very special. Um, My brother and I have been best friends um, our entire lives. We've always been playing with one another, sharing with one another. Describe to me when you guys first got introduced to the game of basketball and when you guys knew that you could be special and this this game could do something for your lives. So we were first introduced around six years old. Our parents wanted to get us active in just about every single sport. We had a neighbor, uh, his name was Andrew Silver, who was our age, and he had a basketball hoop in his driveway. We were growing extremely quickly. So in third grade, we were 5'3". Uh, Jaron, what were your um, fondest memories of going through your early basketball journey with your brother? The competition. My brother and I, we always competed against each other. We always wanted to make each other better. Um, a lot of games that ended in fights, <laughs> a lot of physical play. It always comes back to the relationships um, between myself and my brother. Just remember my brother and myself pushing each other to be the best versions that we could be. Always little things like um, ball handling, who could go around the back fastest, who could uh, handle a basketball, um, who could shoot better, who was a better rebounder. It was all the little things that we always pushed each other um, to be better at, and it, it ended up helping us. Um, Can I also add that yeah. also our, our dad would take us to play pickup games against people his age. So yeah, that also smart. definitely, yeah. uh, and, and I think that's a common thread in a lot of uh, professional athletes or just great athletes in general is that when you're younger, you're playing against older kids or sometimes even grown men. Jason, I'm going to throw out a date to you. You tell me what it means. Okay. April 29, 2013. That is around the day that I came out publicly. I got to give a lot of credit to my family, my friends, especially Arn Tellum, Arn and Nancy, who were, uh, Arn was my agent at the time. But the coolest moment uh, was definitely getting back-to-back calls from Oprah Winfrey and President Barack Obama. Really? uh, Yes. What, What do you remember about those conversations? Oprah... She wanted to do an interview with me, but she didn't just want me. She wanted the whole family. That was really cool. And I asked my parents, do you guys want to be a part of this? Uh, When I called them later that day and said, hey, Oprah, or especially my mom, like, hey, Oprah (laughs) called and she wants to do an interview. 
with the entire family, would you be open to that? My mom was like, oh, I got to get my nails. I got to get my hair. Ooh, what am I going to wear? She was instantly on board. Jaron and, and his wife, uh, Elsa, uh, were there uh, as well. My dad, my aunt flew in. It was a special moment. And then with President Obama, uh, his message was, congratulations. And Jason, this is going to mean something to somebody that you might not ever meet in your lifetime. And just know that you are helping someone who you might not get a chance to meet by Mm. doing what you did. Um, I think that's what (laughs) I think all of us in life should strive to do is try to, you know, help somebody and who might, we might not ever meet in our lifetime, but we will have a positive effect. What was the toughest thing? Was there any negative fallout that you had to deal with or? No, well, the negative was that I was a free agent. So I came out, you said in April, May and free agency started July 1st. And I knew as a veteran center that I wouldn't be in those first few, uh, uh, that first month. But I knew right before training camp is where you usually try to fill out the end of your roster and, you know, bring in a veteran. So I knew that that was going to be sort of my opportunity, um, or I thought. The toughest part was when I saw those roster spots getting filled with players that I knew that I was better than. As a veteran center, Jaron, as a coach, can I'm sure can attest to this, You know that the guys on the end of the bench, they might not play, but if you need them to play, they got to be ready. That And that speaks to their professionalism, how hard they work, how hard they train. And I I got that. I knew that. And I worked my butt off to be ready at at all times. Last question on this, Jason, but do you think your announcement ended your NBA career? No. No, because I ultimately got back into NBA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to play. Now, it took longer than expected, um, but, you know, the season started in October, but it hurt that I wasn't there. So I was just training, working out October, November, December, January. The Nets were the only team that gave me a tryout. Wow. And, and that's something that I tell people is that you might only get one opportunity in life and for that moment to happen. And I put myself in, my, in that position to succeed so much so that after that workout was over, I was like, they got no choice. <laughs> like I, I absolutely did every single thing. Uh, oh no, actually about a week later, I got calls on, and the night before we actually, Jared, I, do you remember this? We, uh, you guys hosted a, a game night. It was a Saturday night that Sunday, uh, woke up to miss calls from my agent and text messages from J kid saying, Hey, uh, we're going to sign you and we're playing the Lakers tonight. Uh, we need you to be ready. Yeah, and I had a, a breakfast meeting I had to get to at like 10 or 10.30. And I think it was a 6 o'clock game playing against Kobe, Pau Gasol. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, the Lakers, like, the legit Lakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then what was also really cool was my teammates said to me, hey, uh, before the game, this is in the locker room, we want you to be one of the captains. So it's like Darren Williams, Joe Johnson, and me and Paul Gasol and Kobe Bryant <laughs> meeting with the referees and this and that. In the history of the NBA, has there ever been a guy who signed out of, in his first game <laughs> is one of the co-captains? Yeah, that's um, beautiful. Jaron, what do you remember about Jason um, first telling you and how, how did you support him? And, and what do you remember about the day when, it, when he came out to the world? Well, when he first told me, he came over to my house and said, I had to tell you something serious. So sat me down. It, he knew that I was in a rush. And so when he's saying something and he's like being so serious, my brother and I, we don't have these like big sit down, serious conversations. 
So I'm like, what? What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> and um, and he, he told me that he was gay. It didn't register with me. There was a realization that I'm, I was like, oh, my God, my brother's been living with this his entire life. And he's just now telling me this. In that moment, it was my job as his brother to support him, to know that he was loved. I could tell that Jaron was, he was anxious about what his wife's reaction also comes from a very Roman Catholic family. So religion and Roman Catholicism, and we all know the church's stance when it comes to LGBTQ yeah. issues. So Jared had dropped his, uh, his daughter off, came back to my house. Elsa was there and, again, sat him down and said, hey, Elsa, I'm gay and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and Elsa was like, oh, it doesn't, but we love you. And like tears mm-hmm. and like hugs and instantly. And then, you know, by, later that night, we're back to uh, cracking jokes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, John, yeah. how did you, um, you know, with young children, how did you explain it to them? It's really nothing that we said. Uh, we had to sit them down or anything like that. It's just yeah. my brother is referred to as Tio in our household. Tio's gay. And this is his partner, Brunson. It wasn't any big sit down or anything like that. And my kids, um, they love and respect and the relationship is always the same. That was also the the really cool thing about that that day, besides getting the back-to-back calls from Oprah and, and President Barack Obama, President Obama, was that later that night, I went over to Jaron and Elsa's house because I used to read the kids' bedtime stories. And later that night, I came over and hung out with the kids like I normally did <laughs> and, you know, got to read them a book and, you know, they went to bed and it was, uh, so that was really cool. Jason, what, what what kind of ally was your brother in in, in terms of other NBA <clears throat> players or I know Rick Welts, like who certainly were allies for you uh, or have been allies oh, for you? I can't say enough good things about Rick Welts. He's just he's and uh, and then I interrupt you for people that don't know that's the I guess now former president of the Golden State Warriors because of Rick Welts. And the support of the owners and uh, the leadership of the NBA, Adam Silver, the All-Star game was moved from Charlotte to New Orleans because of that discriminatory law that was passed, the backroom bill. That game from Charlotte doesn't get moved without Rick Welch because he is the voice, like in, um, as it says in, in Hamilton, I want to be in the the room where it happens kind of thing. Like Rick Welts is in those rooms. Sometimes it's very difficult um, when you are a member of a minority group to always be the one saying, hey, so I'll just talk about it from being black. Sometimes it's very difficult when you're the only black person in the room to always bring up the racial issues, like to constantly always, it can be tiresome sometimes, which is why you need allies in the room so that, it isn't incumbent on just the only black person in the room to be the one who's always saying, hey, can we look at things from a racial perspective? I say that because what Jaron did, and I won't say which team, and that team had the kiss cam up, say, go ahead, get close, give them a kiss. So at the end of their kiss cam segment, they flashed to two Golden State Warriors players and said, go ahead, get closer. You know you want to give them a kiss. And Jaron, to his credit, recognized that that's a gay joke, that you, when you have LGBTQ families, and what's the message that that's sending to kids is that two men getting together, you're able to laugh and sneer and, and joke, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's not cool. That's not right. 
because it really didn't dawn on me at the time. But as I'm watching it up there on the Jumbotron and the crowd, they start making jokes <clears throat> and, and, and hissing. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that could be my brother down there. Watching that up on the Jumbotron really pissed me off. During a timeout, is that the end of the timeout? And, I, and I'm, I'm running on a 10. I'm hot. The Snickers, it, it, there was nothing funny about what was being said and what was being communicated. So as soon as the game ended, I went and found, I mean, I know how these things work, the PA announcer. So I, I let them both know in strong language that that was unacceptable. And it really didn't dawn on them that they were in the wrong until I started using even stronger language because when I corrected them, the PA announcer, his answer to me was, make sure you have a good night. So I turned back around when he told me that and I went back at him with stronger language so that there was no confusion on what was being communicated. So then Jaron let his boss know, let Steve Kerr know what happened. But then he also called me and I work for the NBA now, um, uh, NBA Cares uh, ambassador. So when Jaron told me what happened at the end of my meeting with my boss, um, I said, hey, we have a, also a situation that happened in this, with this particular franchise. Now, the NBA isn't necessarily aware of every single thing that happens in our arenas. But if something is alerted, I think our league, along with the WNBA, can change it like that. So the day after I had my meeting, the president of that organization called my brother, said that that would never happen again. Because he, he apologized to me, and I said, your apology isn't to me. Apology is to the LGBTQ community. Fast forward to a year later after that, maybe two years. I don't even know, Jason and I were at All-Star. And there was an employee who works for that team who came up to me, and when they said which team they work for, I said, oh, I have a story about your organization, and I told them what happened to my brother. And that employee, who happens to be a member of the LGBTQ community, said, that was your brother who did that? Can you thank him? That employee, who's a member of the LGBTQ community, would go to games and see that, but didn't feel secure enough to say something about it because of, you know, possible retribution at work or blah, blah, blah. But it's an, it's tough always to be like, hey, that's that's gay. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's right. like point that out. Like that's racist. Like, and which is again why you need allies to use their voice, to use their platform. Because this employee would have to come to work to game nights and see that constantly. And would have to sort of, you know, get that into like, God, I wish I could say something, but I just don't feel comfortable to say something. But an ally did say something, and uh, because of that, it changed, and they were so grateful. Now that, that's some um, brotherly love there, huh? That's, Absolutely. That's Absolutely. beautiful, man. Jason, what advice would you give to any of our listeners who might be struggling themselves with their identity or, or, or sexuality? you got to build your support system up. This journey of life that we're all on, don't feel like you have to go through it alone. It took me 32, 33 years of my life to actually say the words out loud, to tell another human being that I'm gay. And I know people who, who have struggled even longer than that. But 
there are resources now. There's especially the, the, that's one of the positives about the internet, social media. There's a lot of negatives, <laughs> um, but one of the positive is that it, it can connect us. And there are organizations in just about every major city you are in. There's an LGBT center, and if you are in the sports world, you can reach out to people through direct message. Through Twitter, Instagram, you know, Facebook, well, you know, there are resources that you can reach out to people. And we have an expression in the in the community: it's the family that you have, and it's the family that you choose to have. Not everyone is going to be met with acceptance. Uh, some are going to be met with rejection. But you surround yourself with people who accept you and uplift you and keep you in a, a positive mind frame. When I talk to people, as I build that support system, there were people in my family, in my inner circle, who said, we love you. This is before I decided to make the public announcement. We love you, but you don't have to talk about these things. That's called, that's called living in a glass house. Yeah, or, or living, yeah, living in a glass closet or a living a life of non-disclosure. I reminded them that you have taught me and my brother to be proud of every single thing that makes us who we are, whether it is to be tall, to be black, to be part Native American, to be going to Stanford, to yada, yada, yada. Be proud and celebrate everything that makes us who we are. Well, guys, thank you very much. Thank you for your impact on the world. Thank you for coming on Beyond 28. Love you both, man. Hopefully I'll uh, see you at an arena soon. Mark, I appreciate you. And thank you so much for uh, hosting this. Jason, thank you for sharing so much. And, and Mark, thank you for having us on. I know, you know Pride Month is about celebration. It's about honoring the people who have come before us. I think all of us being minorities, know what it's like to stand on the shoulders of the people who have come before us and honor them. So let's uh, pay homage to those people. World War II, the shipbuilding industry and escape from Jim Crow in the South drove tens of thousands of African-Americans to San Francisco and the Bay Area in the 1940s. The black population rose to a peak of 13% by the early 1970s. Now, the black population stands just 3% of the city's total, but is still standing proud despite its reduced numbers. Juneteenth has been a festival of pride for this community. It mirrors the fortunes of African-Americans in the city, we take time and Beyond 28 to document this important celebration and the tireless work of a special woman, Rachel Townsend. She made the continuation of Juneteenth her life's work. We tell the story of the festival in the city and her passion through the voice of her father, Reverend Arnold Townsend, Vice President of San Francisco's NAACP. Like most of us, most black folk in this town was very unhappy about the decline of the African-American population. It has been tragic. One thing that no one talks about, urban renewal, which we call Negro removal, started it. And it changed the politics of San Francisco horribly. From its high point in the 1970s, San Francisco's black population was situated primarily in the Fillmore, Bayview, Hunters Point, and Lakeview, Ingleside area. Not only was it large, it was very active. 
the numbers of black owned businesses, social clubs, and even restaurants and nightclubs. Just recently, I heard an old man tell a young fellow, he said, son, I remember when you used to have to walk down Fillmore Street sideways because it was so crowded. And that's pretty much the truth. The music that existed gave the community a rhythm that you could feel in the daytime as people went up and down the street conducting their business. Jazz, the classical music of Black America and African-American creativity, flourished in the city. Such luminaries as Billie Holiday, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, and Dexter Gordon flocked to the city to play here. The black imprint on the city was strong. There were celebrations all across the Bay Area today. San Francisco began hosting a large celebration to recognize it in the 1940s. Marking Juneteenth in America for a national recognition to celebrate Juneteenth. For all these people, it was kind of a regional festival at that time that everybody black in the Bay Area showed up for Juneteenth. And in those days, we had it for two days. On the weekend closest to June 19th, when redevelopment, urban renewal came, it kind of died out. My daughter, Rachel Brooke Townsend, was born at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California, November 6, 1979. One of the reasons that Rachel and others, including our mayor now, London Breed, and a whole lot of other of us thought it was important to keep Juneteenth going because with the declining population, we need to make a statement that we're still here and we're not going anywhere. We will be black out loud. This year, Juneteenth is celebrated with reinvigorated passion and purpose. Black history is really what built this country to be what it is today. I'm just trying to make sure that I celebrate black struggle, black joy, and black hard work. Every ethnicity in town had their day. There was a St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Cherry Blossom Festival in Japantown, Chinese New Year, Columbus Day. Everybody had something going but the black community. And we decided right then we would write that, we would change that narrative. Now remember Rachel was born in 79 and we brought her to her first Juneteenth when she was at seven, eight months old and she didn't have much choice but to get involved in duty. But that was her first one. And I think maybe she must have been high school or middle school. She just kind of volunteered. She was involved every year ever since until she ultimately became responsible for the entire festival. And when she worked on Juneteenth, everything from meetings downtown, whether it was in the mayor's office or the supervisor's office, or meeting with the police department to get all the logistics right. There was nothing that she wouldn't do when it came to trying to make Juneteenth right. So she kind of came by working in political campaigns for people she liked, and she was very good at it because once again, she was organized and she could work people. I mean, in terms of signing and giving instruction and direction, she was just good at it, really good at it, and people accepted it, you know. She didn't get a lot of pushback. I get a call one night, Rachel's mom, Susan, is on the phone, and she said, Rachel just got out of bed to go to the bathroom and collapsed and can't get up, and she just never recovered from it. 
in three years. It's difficult to talk about. And whenever I can talk about it without tears, I'm always surprised. She passed. January 5th, 2018, Rachel was struck down in the prime of her life. But that was not the end of the legacy of this tireless community leader. Bishop Ishmael Birch, who for years has been in charge of the Juneteenth Parade, he came to me to tell me that the Juneteenth Parade is now the Rachel Townsend Juneteenth Parade. Recognition of Rachel's work didn't stop there. Our organization CHP under the direction of Gail Gilman came to me and said, Reverend, we just rehabbed a building in the Fillmore, and I was wondering if you would help us find somebody prominent in the black community to name it after. And I said, sure, I'll talk to you. And she stopped and said, Rev, no, I, I'm sorry, Rev, I wasn't really honest. What I really want to do is want to know would it be okay to name it after your daughter? With California and Bay Area loosening restrictions on outdoor gatherings, mask wearing, and capacity limits at live entertainment venues, this year's Juneteenth promises to be one of the biggest in years. Moreover, the celebrations are perfectly timed as Congress passed the Senate bill on June 16th, making Juneteenth a federal holiday across America. That completes this month's episode. I'd like to thank our guests Juan Toscano-Anderson, Jason and Jaron Collins, and the Reverend Arnold Townsend. Stay tuned next month when we'll explore what freedom means to the Black community in the context of July 4th. Beyond 28 is brought to you by the Golden State Warriors and Chase. I'm your host, Mark Spears. See you next time. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.